I don't know if you guys know, but this is DNA Sundays. The DNA Sundays, this is an interactive time. This is a, like, if, if this is the most call and response blueprint church ever gets, you know, and especially as it comes into on, on Sunday and, and, you know, in this, this time. This is time is a, a time that we are going to rehearse our DNA, you know. So every year, for those of you who are new to Blueprint or haven't been here for over a year, um, every year in August, we basically take a pause and we stop and we say, this is what we are about. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So Jesus was really clear at the very beginning of that if you follow him, where the destination that he was trying to take you, right? So in the same way at the church, we believe that, um, that a call to membership, our call to be is about a call to journey on the discipleship journey. And it's our focus to, to let you know where we're going, where we're heading. So every year we stop and we say, hey, this is where we're heading at a church. This is where we're going. And so today we're going to be taking up week two, week two of it. And so everybody in, on your way in ought to have gotten a, a little a, a sheet. And this is basically the, the document that we're going to be using or the sheet that we're going to be using on it. We try to get budget efficient, so we put it all on one sheet. You know, if you need glasses, we, we don't have anything for you. But, but we did want to um, be a little efficient. So, but but it, is, it is, for me, it's one of the most exciting times of the year because it gets a, a chance to kind of remind ourselves, right, to keep the main thing the main thing, Right. Because when it comes down to um, who we are and why, why we do what we do, this is that time where we, are, we get a chance to remind ourselves and to remind one another. It's an opportunity for us to reinforce why we do the things that we do. And so at the very core of who we are, is it talks about it's the, the concept of is our DNA, our DNA. You know, and so in our DNA, there's, you know, we, our goal is that we want you to be able to in, internalize our DNA. So hypothetically, if we were to put you guys right now into however many people, different rooms, individual rooms, and then you can say, what is Blueprint Church about? Where are they, what, what are we trying to do? That you would be able to re you reiterate our statement, where we are, what we are about. And it is also a, a thing for us to keep us accountable. You know, when we talk about like, where are we going, you know, or who we are and how does this help us become, you know, um, help us to fulfill our DNA. So it's just a constant reminder for us. And so what is that, you might ask? It is this. These are the statements that we want you to internalize. We want you to understand. The first is that we believe is that's our underlying philosophy. It's our underlying philosophy. And our underlying philosophy is that we believe that the gospel changes people, and what? All right, so let's all say it together because, again, this is call and response. So, all right, so our underlying philosophy is the gospel people, and people change the world. See, we're doing well already. So that's, that's the underlying philosophy. We don't have a new gospel, right? We don't have anything different. There's no tricks. We're not going to be juggling on stage. We're not going to do it. Like, it's the gospel. The gospel changes people, and God uses the gospel or people to change the world, that God has, that, that we are his plan. That I know we've, some of you have grown, grown up in church. He says that God can make the rocks cry out and all the things. It's like, yes, he can do all that, but he has just sovereignly chosen not to, and he has said that you, you are we are his preferred vessel, 
right, to take the good news of the gospel to the world. So that's our underlying philosophy. The gospel changes people and people change the world. So our mission, we exist as a church to unleash healthy people to do ministry where life exists. I'm going to give you this the first time. At week four, we're going to have to come back and we're going to do it all again and everybody's going to be able to, to see it. But our mission, the reason why we exist is to unleash healthy people. Just read. Like we're, we're giving you all the answers. Like this is not, like our goal is not to switch and to trick you. Like we, we genuinely, we want you to understand, we want you to get is that if the gospel changes people and people change the world, then it's our responsibility as a church to unleash, not just anybody, but healthy people to do ministry where life exists, to do ministry where they live, where they work, where they worship, Right. We want you to be healthy, whereas you are being released to do ministry in those areas. And so the way we define health, the way we define health are people who are growing in the gospel, in the context of family. Go ahead. While on mission. That's all right. This, come on. You can do this message with me, right? The goal is, is that we will grow in the gospel in the context of family while on mission, that those are the three primary relationships, that if you've heard the statement, Christianity is not a religion, but it's relationship. What we're saying is that Christianity is not a religion, but it's relationships. And it's about our relationship with God, our relationship with other believers, and our relationship with our neighbors, right? And so everything that we do is that it's aimed to, to make disciples in these three core identities. And we talk about identities instead of our aims, instead of values. And the reason why is because that your identity drives your activity. Who you are will determine what you do, right? And so our identity drives responsibility. And so when we talk about this idea of our aims, we're saying that our goal is that we want people to be gospel-centered believers, responsible siblings, indigenous disciple makers, and generous stewards, right? Those are the four core ingredients. So everything that we do as a church is to aim at one of those four core identities. And you can hold us accountable. And if anything doesn't help us to be a gospel-centered believer, a responsible sibling, an indigenous disciple maker, or a generous steward, then you can hold us accountable because that is, those are our aims. That what we are trying to do is to get us to understand that that's who we are in Christ. That's who we are in Christ. And so last week, last week, we're going to see the people who were listening last week. Last week, we talked about the gospel-centered believer. And then we said the gospel-centered believer reshapes the way we think, speak, and live. Hey, we got one. I heard one person out there. That was good. The gospel reshapes our identity, the way we think, the way we speak, and the way we live. Last week, we talked about exactly what that looks like, right? And so we said, you know, when it comes to how we live with the hard-hat identity versus the gospel-centered believer, talk about how we think. We talked about the idea of this, the OIA squared um, method of how we um, live. And then we also talked about how we speak. The way we speak is that we talk about we need to become more fluent in the gospel, 
right? That it's not just the gospel is not just about what you're going to do if you die. The gospel is so much more, right? There's so much more and it impacts and it ought to affect the way we think, the way we speak, the way we live, that it affects your marriage. It it affects your, your, your living situation, how you choose a job, how you choose where you live, how you interact with your neighbor. It affects every area of life. And so what we're talking about is the difference becoming um, fluent in the gospel, right? And so what we say is as gospel-centered believers that it ought to shape the way we think, speak, and live, right? And so that's where, so we talk about it's our relationship, and that's primarily focused on our relationship with God. It's the vertical, right? And oftentimes we have relationship, we understand our relationship with God, but the challenge is, is that we don't understand our relationship with one another. So what does the gospel look like when it impacts our one another, right? And so if we say one is that one of the core identities is a gospel-centered believer, the second core identity that we're going to be talking about today is a responsible sibling, a responsible sibling. So we've already um, introduced the text to you. And so what we're going to do, I'm going to spend a few time, a few minutes just talking about, all right, just kind of unpacking what it means to be a responsible sibling. Then we're going to have one of our elders come up and he's going to come and we're going to do a Q&A. So if you have any questions, right, take some time, write them down. And we're going to spend about 10, 15 minutes on just Q&A and just talking. Then we'll have another worship song and then um, we will have our benediction and close. Right, and so that's where we're going. So let's pray and give our hallelujah to Jesus. Father, we're thankful for who you are and what you have done in Christ. So thank you for allowing us, Father, to be clear on where you have calling us to be, where you're calling us to go. We pray, God, right now that the words of our hearts and the meditations of our mouths would be acceptable to you. You are our rock. You are our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So when we talk about this concept of being a responsible sibling, really one of the things that we want to say is this. We want to say simply that the church, that we are family, the church is family. And as family, we take responsibility of or for one another, for one another. How many of you guys, right, are, um, have siblings? How many of you guys are the only child? Right. We got a few. Few are the only child. But if you've had like whether you have you're the only child and if you had cousins or whatever and you've been to Disney World or Disneyland or Six Flags or whatever, you know, you you know, they would all dress you up in the same, you know, T-shirt or whatever. And they would say for the your loved ones, you are what? You are responsible for so and so. Right. And if you are a sibling, you know how that goes oftentimes that you are responsible for your sibling. And how many of you, whenever you hear that, and even now it's kind of traumatizing when you hear that, that you says that you want to say, I'm not the parent. Like you, you, I wasn't even going that way, but you already had something that you already have come back. That I'm not the parent, right? I am not responsible. And you got to understand that ever since the Bible was formed, that we were made for relationship. And that every earthly relationship that formed at the beginning ended tarnished. Our relationship with God, Adam and Eve, was tarnished. The relationship, the first marriage was tarnished, right, was wrecked. But then one of the things that we see and that we don't often talk about is that the first sibling relationship that we have was broken. 
that we see in Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel, right? And what was Abel after God says, hey, where's your brother? What's going on? What's happening? Because we already know what was kind of taking place. What's going on? What's happening? What was Cain's response? Am I my brother's keeper? Basically, I'm not the parent. I'm not the parent. I'm not responsible. That's not on me. And so from the beginning of sin, we have been running away from the responsibility of the one another's. And basically, what we have formed is a Christianity that is all I need is you. That is only about this vertical relationship, and it has nothing to do with the horizontal. But the Bible does not know of that type of Christianity. So when he talks about this concept of that our relationship it is our relationship with God as gospel and believers, but it's our relationship also as responsible siblings. Why is that the case? There's three things that I want to, we're going to talk real briefly about is that we recognize that in Genesis chapter 3, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 3, God breaks a 400-year silence because he hasn't talked since Malachi when he says, I'm shutting down. And the next voice you're going to hear is that of Elijah, the prophet. So he goes 400 years and does not speak. Now, think about it. We all have children. Or for those of us who have children, you wait two years or 18 months or whatever for your child to speak, Right. God stopped speaking for 400 years. And by the way, when God stopped speaking, what ends up happening is that you end up getting religion. Just think about before in Malachi, there was sacrificing and going to the temples. All of a sudden, have you ever asked the question, where did all the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and where did all these people come from? It's because when God stops speaking, what we do is that we build our modern day Tower of Babels. We start building up, trying to build our way up to God. And it becomes our efforts, it becomes our work, right? So God breaks his silence and he says, no, 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 that's not the way that you come to me. What we see is in Matthew chapter three, we oftentimes we go through it and we don't understand the significance of what was taking place is that the baptism of Jesus, that we see that in Matthew three, God the father says, this is my son in which I'm well pleased. That God breaks his silence and he declares Jesus as being his son, right? And so we recognize that in there, whether it's here or whether it's in Romans chapter eight, where you see that, that we cry out to God, our father, and we cry out, Abba, father, that God is our father in which he is establishing. And so one of the things that we recognize is that if the church, that we are not like family, but we are family, right? God breaks his silence to establish. He says, I am establishing a family. Oftentimes I, I talk with people who start churches and plant churches all the time. Oftentimes I talk to these pastors and these leaders and I say, hey, don't go start a church because when you go start a church, you think about pulpits, preaching, choirs, you know, that's what like, don't go start a church. Instead, establish a family. Establish a family. What type of family? A family in which God is our father, Jesus is our elder brother, and we are brothers and sisters in Christ, right? The church is not like family. We are family. Too many of us treat the church like we say, oh, you were family, but we like play cousins, right? 
Like, we're like, it's not real, but we're just like, kind of like play cards. Because if you just think about the application of how you live your life, you don't live your life with the body of Christ, the people that are in the church, like really as family, as someone that you are responsible for, because you automatically go to, I'm not my brother's keeper. I'm not responsible for them. I'm not responsible. But when we recognize that God being our father, Jesus being our other brother, and we being brothers and sisters in Christ, we recognize something that is core to who we are and what God is trying to do with us in Christ. And so what does that mean? What does that mean? And what does that look like here, right? Throughout this, the Bible, we have what we call, um, you know, a sibling theology. What, and you ask, like, what does that mean, a sibling th- theology? Because oftentimes we don't talk about a sibling theology. We, we have a son and a daughter theology. We understand how we are as sons and daughters of Christ, but we don't really understand how we are as brothers and sisters in Christ. The book of Ephesians talk about we, that he was sending the message to the saints that are in Christ. Do you understand that the Bible does not want you to miss it, both implicitly but also explicitly? It talks about how we are not like family, but we are family. That throughout the the Gospels, throughout the Gospels and in the book of Acts, do you know that the primary way that they describe those who believe in Jesus, you know what the primary way they do? They describe them as disciples. That's the primary way that the Bible refers to you and I, those who believe in Jesus Christ, they refer to us as disciples, one who follows Jesus, right? One time that we see later on, they talk about, they refer to them as Christians, right? This idea that they are followers of Christ, right? Do you know what disappears after the book of Acts? Do you know? The word disciple. Go, go check. It, 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 it doesn't show up anymore. Do you know the new way that they describe you and I as? Brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the new way. That's the way that we are to identify with one another, not solely as disciples of Christ, but as brothers and sisters because we have been adopted into a family that we have been adopted in which God is our father, Jesus being our elder brother as the preeminent and we being brothers and sisters in Christ. And so this is the reason why the Bible is so littered with the one another verses of how we are to live with one another, act with one another, be with one another. And it is really important that we recognize that um, Colossians chapter 1, 19 and 20 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, right? Talk about Christ. And through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of his cross. So included in all of those things is included in the relationship that God is reconciling, not just to him, but reconciling to one another. And it is so critical that we understand this reality. So if it's true that we are not like family, but we are family, and if we really are and genuinely family, we ought to actively take responsibility for one another. Let me just ask you this. If you say you had three other siblings and your parents or your loved ones or somebody came and asked you, where are your siblings? 
And you says, I got one of my siblings right here. And you were just like, well, where are the other two? I don't know. I got one of them here. Would that be an acceptable answer to anybody? No. What if you said two? I got two out of my three siblings here. What would you say? That's still not an acceptable answer. The only acceptable answer is all three of your siblings. But so the question becomes, because I hear what you're saying, with I can't be responsible for everyone. So how do I apply what it looks like to be a responsible sibling to in my everyday life, right? And so, and that's the question that oftentimes that we have to ask, and how do we, who is the we? How are we defining the we? If the church is not like family, but we really are family and we are siblings, how do we define or how do we um, apply the we, right, to one another? And we see this response, right, that um, in Another verse that we won't go over now, but you can look back on is that is in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 talks about that Christ, 3 and 11 to be exact, 11 through 18, um, that Christ is a better Cain. And, he, and basically they take on this idea of what Cain dropped the ball on instead of laying his life down for his brother, instead of using his, his steward or stewarding his, his time, talent, and treasures to lift up his brother, he'd used it to kill his brother. And he says, Christ is a better Cain, who instead used his and steward his time, his talent, and his treasure to do what? To love. To love. And this is why the, Paul talks about this concept of the goal, the goal of my instruction. The goal of what they're trying to do is love from a pure heart, a sincere faith, and a clear conscience. That this is what Paul, Paul has spent, if you just read the New Testament in the Pauline epistles, Paul spends an incredible amount of time on two primary things. One, to cultivate your faith and love in Jesus, and two, to love your brother and your sister as Christ. And because he sums it up, he says that the whole commandment is summed up with, the, with this idea that you love, that you love your brother. Because how can you say you love God but don't love your brother? That that is the, the true way that is through our love for one another that we demonstrate our love for God. That we demonstrate, and it's that idea that we constantly need to make sure that we are pushing so the question becomes is who. And so what we do here at the church, we talk about who is, who are we? So two questions that we always are constantly asking, two questions. One is who are you responsible for? And then two, who is responsible for you? Both of those questions are important. Who are you responsible for at this church? And who is responsible for you? And this is where you come both as someone who gives, but also someone who receives. Because here's the truth, right? If you don't feel like anybody in this church is responsible for you, you are treating church like an event. The church is something that you go to. It's something that you attend, right? That's not what Christ died for. Christ died for his bride, that he was gathering a people. He was gathering a people to himself. He was gathering sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. 
And so when he talks about that, he's that if we are treating church like an event, what's going to end up happening is that whether it's two months, three months, five months, or a year from now, you're going to say, I don't feel known at this church because I don't feel like anybody's responsible for me. Why? Because responsibility drives activity. You know, about, I've, I've ruptured both patella tendons. I'm just blessed like that. But I have ruptured both of them over the course of post-football career, weekend warrior type stuff. Right? But I ruptured. And every time I ruptured each one of my patella tendons, I would go home did I have to give a speech to my family and say, hey, things are going to change. You're responsible. You're going to have to take me. Did I have to give them any speech? No. Why? Because we recognize that as family, they're responsible. So there was no speech given. There was no need given. And so the focus was is that if, I am, if identity, that we are family, drives our responsibility, then our responsibility determines our activity. Right. And so I couldn't I didn't have to go through all the list of things that we have to do in order to show that what responsibility looks like. It was just a part of it. And it's just like we were just responsible for one another. And so their life was changed because of my affliction. And so when we talk about who's responsible for you and who are you responsible for, that means that if something were to go wrong in your life or if somebody something was to go wrong in somebody else's life, that you would say, okay, I have to reprioritize my life in order to help my brother or help my sister. Who is that for you at this church? Who are the people that will reprioritize? Who are the people that you would reprioritize your life within this church? That's how we know we're talking about. We're not just talking about being siblings. We're talking about being a responsible sibling. We as elders, we have to answer this question. We're like, oh God, who are we responsible for? If someone comes one time to the church, are we responsible two times, three times? Like how do, when do, when are we responsible for someone? And this is the reason why we came up. We says, listen, every single person who ever walks in the church comes into one or three categories. They're either a guest, their friend, or their family. Right. And our goal is that we want our guests to become friends and we want our friends to become family. But the only people that we are responsible for are our family. Right. Because if I were to go and he says, well, Dottie, who is your family? I would say, well, I'm real clear on who my family is. The Lewis eight. Right. My nuclear family. I would say the Lewis eight are my, is, my, is, is who my family is. Right. And it's just like, it's me and my wife, we have the, and our six children. That is who we are primarily responsible for. Now, we take the Lewis 8. If you go to my house, there's always a couple of people that are in our house at any time. So our house can go from 8 to about 24 real quick. Right? It can go. Now, while those, all those kids, all those people are in our house, they're in my house. Who's responsible for them? I'm responsible because they're in my house. But even though they may be even a guest or they may be a regular and they're a friend, I'm responsible. But as soon as they leave my house, am I still responsible for them? No. Who's responsible for them? Their parents or siblings or just not me. <laughs> right? I'm not responsible. But in my house, if my kids, right, when they're in my house, who is responsible for them? Me. When they leave my house, who's responsible for them? 
me. Why? Because my responsibility for them is not driven by time and space. It's driven by covenant. And so what we say is, is that those who say they are one to be covenant, covenanted with the leadership or with this family are those that we are responsible for. And so we take our, we are responsible and we just create those lines. And so in there, basically there's five circles, five circles that I want you to, to think about. As you start thinking about yours and it's on your sheet, five circles, and I'm sorry about the printing. It's, it is what it is, Right. But there's five circles on here. And I want you to, whether it's in there or draw it off to the side, I want you to write in that very first circle. Now, let me back up for a second. If we say that the gospel changes people and people change the world, and it's our responsibility to unleash healthy people to do ministry where life exists, that if we're saying that what it means to be a healthy person is someone who is growing in the gospel in the context of family while on mission, gospel family mission, right? So that's what we define as health. So I want us to think about it. So in that inner circle, the first person you are responsible for is you. So I want you to put me at the very core, right? Now, some of you that if you are married, the second circle, you know, which is the, my primary responsibility is Angie, right? My spouse. So my second circle is I say my marriage, right? If you're not married, then who's that close inner friend, right? Or that close group, that sibling group that you can put. But for us, it's our ma- my marriage. Then we get to that third circle. That's my nuclear family, right? And then when you get to the fourth circle, then that is my city group. That's the inner group within the church. And then when you get to the fourth, it's blueprint. It's our church, right? Now, if you notice, I don't have a sixth ring and a seventh ring. I don't go out into the community and to all of those things. Because if the Bible says that the world will know you're my disciples because of your love for one another. The best thing that we can do is to show them the transforming community of the gospel. Because here's the truth. Oftentimes, and this is a quote that I learned years ago, oftentimes people are first converted to the Christian church before they're converted to the Christian God. They come in, and the Bible says it this way. They come in and they see your love for one another, and it glorifies God who's in heaven. Right? And so that is the, that's the idea of it. And so when I talk about who am I responsible for, and if my responsibility is to grow into a healthy believer in Jesus Christ, then now I have to ask the question that I actually ask the question. And first question I need to ask is, am I the type of person that I would want to see reproduced in my church? Right? Because you cannot give what you do not have. And if you're unhealthy at the core, you're going to produce unhealth. You're just, all you're going to do is perpetuate unhealth. So am I growing in the gospel? And so, I have to, so if, am I the type of person I want to see reproduced? And if that's, the, if that's the question, then I have to ask myself the question, am I growing in the gospel in the context of family while on mission? And what rhythms am I doing to cultivate that? What disciplines am I doing? That's the first question I got to ask myself. In order to be a responsible sibling, I got to first ask myself, am I growing in the gospel in the context of family while on mission? Right? 
And then I want to ask my second responsibility. And then I want to ask the question, is my marriage the type of marriage that I would want to see reproduced in the church? And then I got to ask the question, is my marriage growing in the gospel, in the context of family, while on mission? And if not, what am I doing? What disciplines am I doing to cultivate that? Then I got to ask my, the third question, nuclear family. Is the Lewis A growing in the gospel, in the context of family, while on mission? And what rhythms am I doing to cultivate that? And then you get that within my city group, gospel family mission, within my church. What are we doing? How are we healthy? Right? And it just comes down to just simply this applying that and understanding that if we um, are wanting to reproduce healthy people, what type of health are we reproducing? What are we reproducing? And so we say gospel, family, mission. Another way of saying is gospel-centered believers, responsible siblings, indigenous disciple makers. Right? That is what we are doing. That's what we're cultivating. And again, I said it last week and I'll say it again. No matter if you choose to be at, be at this church or be at any church, if, that is going to come down to those three primary relationships. Everything. That whether you're in Campus Crusade, Navigators, InterVarsity, or whatever, just look at church's mission statements. It always comes to up, in, out, um, growth, the, the development, disciple, like out, in. And it's, it's always your personal, your external, and your upward. Right? It's, it's always going to be something some form of those three primary relationships. And so we talk about stewardship, which we're talking about in the fourth week as saying that now that we understand it's about these three relationships, the Christian life is about how you use your time, your talent, and your treasures to cultivate those three relationships. So the question is, is am I growing in the gospel in the context of family while being on mission? Is my marriage growing in the gospel in the context of family while on mission? Is my um, my nuclear family is my city group. So I literally will take a sheet of, of paper, just like I gave you, and I would draw out to the side, and I would just do a, a diagnostic self-evaluation of myself. How do I feel like I'm doing? How do I feel like I'm doing? And then what do I do, need to do to cultivate those things? So that's one of the things that we say, and we'll say one more, and then we'll ask Trent to come up, Elder Trent to come up. Um, the other thing that, that we talk about is that you guys remember the old, I think it was a Tyler Perry show, the family that prays together does what? Stay together. You know he didn't come up with that, right? Just one of y'all. It was actually a Catholic priest um, years, years ago. But it, the, the statement is true. A family that stays together or a family that prays together stays together. So when we talk about being a responsible sibling, one of the most easy ways that we can do that is being intentional about praying for one another. Being intentional about praying for one another. And this is why as a church, that if you are a covenant family member at our church, is that we pride that every single month for every family member at our church, we are praying for every single covenant member, family member at our church that we're praying for you, right? And, and that is our heart. That's our desire. And so when we talk about prayer, we just simply say prayer is these four things that, you know, that we want um, to, to, to let you know in terms of how we and help you to shape your prayer life. And it comes from the, the model ACTS, A-C-T-S, ACTS, right? The A is simply adoration, 
right? Basically declaring God for who he's worth. So you just simply, you're starting your prayer says, God, you are worthy. You are holy. You are like, God, you are. And if you struggle with that, just go read the Psalms. It just talks about, and this, this talks about how good our God is. So the second thing that we see is confession. Confession, as we talked about last week as a gospel-centered believer, is simply telling the truth about what's going on inside. Are you willing to tell the truth about what's, are you willing to fess up, confess, confess what's within you? Are you willing to tell the truth? It's not about just telling the truth about the bad things that you did. It's just really telling you, telling the truth. So it could be, I'm lonely, I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm hurt. Because it's oftentimes those things that leads us to our sin. But see, but the problem is, and that's why the Bible says, be angry, but don't sin. Because we are not willing to confess our anger, we end up sinning. But if we're willing to confess our anger, we actually can do something with our anger that won't lead us to sin. Because anger actually can lead to passion. I don't want to live with anybody who's not angry. I want anger. And if you look at the Bible, the most angry person in the Bible is God. Just let's look at the Psalms again. He says, God was angry. So anger is not a sin. That's not this message, but it is because, you know, anyway. All right, let me get back. Confess. Thank you. You see, I'm rabbit and I'm already over. Trent, come up here. Uh, so adoration, uh, just adoring God for who he is. Confession, telling the truth. Like so many times, I said, God, I'm lonely, I'm sad, and then taking that to God. The T is thanksgiving, thanking God for what he has done, what he is doing, like in, your, in his life, because we got to practice cultivating gratitude and thankfulness to God. And then the last one is S, is supplication. Supplication is a simply um, praying on behalf of someone else, interceding for someone else. And so when we talk about that, when we talk about responsibility, here's a, a clear, easy application. It's first, go through the five circles and ask yourself, right, am I healthy? Is my marriage healthy? Is my family healthy? And just ask yourself those questions, whatever your circles are. And then the second thing that I want you to do is that just commit to pray. And just simply walk through acts. Like, I just, I just want to praise God for my church. I just want to praise God for my nuclear family. I just want to praise God for my spouse. I just want to praise God. Like, just start adoring him. Start confessing. But God, I feel lonely in, in, in my family. I feel, I feel, like, angry when we get together. Like, just start confessing. Then start thanking God. Like, and just take those circles and just apply that. Right? That's easy. That's, anybody can do that. All right. And so we're going to invite Trent up now. We're going to take questions and answer. We're going to hopefully give answers. But um, we also want to give, do we have a couple of mics that we can take around? And so when we talk about this idea of being a responsible sibling that we want to start. So if you have your questions as, they, as we're gathering the mics, um, we will um, just be thinking about that, but we'll start off with Trent. Sorry, I didn't let them know that we was going to do this again. We have uh, any questions? Can we just use this for, for now? 
No, don't. He says, don't mess with your mic. It's the worship team who always. That's fine. No, just you. All right. So, Trent, when you think about this concept of being a responsible sibling, as we we have a question here, um, first, it's like what what first stands out to you about this um, being a responsible sibling, and then we'll start with questions. Mm. Yeah, um, I mean, I think the first thing that comes to mind is how this is all connected, right? And we talked about Gospel Center Believer last week, and, and you hit on it, right? Where we have a, a vertical relationship with God, and if that's not right, then it's obviously going to impact our horizontal relationships. And um, I was reading something even this morning of, you know, it's like so much of our world is this in shape, right? Like we do something and then, you know, hope to get something in return, Whereas like Christianity at the core is a U-shape. It's like, no, we give nothing. We deserve sin and death and that's our wages and Christ gives grace. And so I think when we, when we talk about, you know, responsible sibling, so much of our world is like, hey, how do I, you know, monetize this? How, what, how can this person help me? You know, all that. But like responsible sibling is more about, no, like out of, to your point, adoration for Christ and what he has done for us, how then do we respond in our horizontal relationships? And that's hard. We fail every day, but that's why, again, we start with gospel-centered believer. We start at the foot of the cross um, in that humility and recognizing what he's done for us. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, so my question, I know you mentioned that being a responsible sibling, part of that is when there's a crisis for who you are responsible for, we jump into action and we respond mm -hmm. and we, we help that way. Would you say that there's anything else that you would consider in like a day-to-day -day life basis that it yeah. means to be a responsible sibling? Yeah, I, I mean, I would just say, like I oftentimes talk about our children and, you know, when I talk about our children and how they want another, um, I often say, hey, like, are, how are you being a leader with, to one another? And when we, the way we define leadership is that how are you taking the initiative for the benefit of your other brothers and sisters? So how do you proactively? Because if you only leave it in that who is changing their responsibilities, then it's like the squeaky wheel. And then oftentimes if you don't, then it's just like, I feel lonely and isolated and by myself. And so the question is, is like, how are we proactively meeting the needs? And this is why the Bible tells us, it says, don't forsake the gathering. Don't forsake is because it's in that that you are able to find out what the needs in, of the community, right? Because when you think about like who's responsible, there, there's a sense of regular activity that we have. And so one of the ways that we try to flesh that out here as a church is that we, that's what we talk about city groups. Right? That's one way as a city group. But even within our city groups, we have DNA groups. And those DNA groups are not, hopefully are not defined by time and space, but it's by a regular activity that you can do. And now, and if you are one of those people that don't feel like I don't, I'm not seen here at the church, what I would say is that you take the initiative, right? And I remember Angie, my wife, she won't mind me sharing this, but I remember like when she was just like, as you know, being someone in the church, I feel super lonely, isolated by myself. And I just remember it was about six or seven years ago, she like called some friends that were in the church and she says, hey, I need a friend. And this is what I need. Let me explain exactly what I need. Can you be that? Right? And so it's, it's, she took the initiative to say what she's needed. It's like, I want to be that. And are you willing to be that for me? Right? And so it's not just solely about does someone kind of search and find you, but it's about like, what are we doing to proactively meet those needs? So proactively meeting the needs of others and how are you 
seeking out, looking for other people. And oftentimes it's either through time um, that, and, and just intentionality. So I just, that would be one. I have a question. I'm trying to think of how to formulate this. How do you prevent the response of being a responsible sibling from turning into legalism? Hmm. You want me? Go ahead. Yeah. All right. I, I, we talked about this last week. In one of the things that you have to understand is discipline and legalism look almost, they can look externally the same, right? Discipline, all discipline is saying that is that I'm weak and I need reminders, right? And so when we talk about we discipline ourselves, if we're giving God our first fruits, whether it's of our time in the morning, whether it's our talent, whether it's our treasure, like how we use, I discipline myself for the purpose of, right, being in right relationship with God. I don't do it in order to obtain it. And that's what legalism is. Legalism is I do these things so that you can. And there's an expectation for something in return, right? And so I love what Trent, you just said, because really when we talk about relationship, it's not a 50-50 proposition. Relationships are more like 100-0, right? Is that you give not expecting anything in return. That's, I mean, just, that's the definition of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't seek after its own, right? It gives. And that's why so many of us avoid loving because it's so vulnerable. It's so vulnerable to put ourselves out like that. It would not a, a, a guarantee that you are going to get something reciprocated in return. Legalism, we go over to legalism when we start demanding whether God or others are to respond to what we do right, because of what we've done, so. And I, I mean, I would just add, like, I think, look at Jesus, right? I mean, the dude spent three years with Judas, right, knowing he was going to betray him, knowing what he was going to get in return, and so it is out of that sense of denying self, carrying our cross, like, knowing this is not for our own gain, this is, we're doing this out of our love for Christ, and so. again, that's hard, <laughs> Yeah, I was just asking um, more for clarification. So if thinking about like church as the body of Christ, do I think of my sibling as within the physical like walls of a church or like believers all over? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, as Dottie was saying, I think for this local body, right, we define family as those who have covenanted with us, right? And we have a covenant. In fact, after church today, we have a membership class where we go through that covenant. Here's who we are as a church. Here's what we're saying we're going to hold ourselves accountable to. Um, and so that is really, I think, what our kind of technical definition is for family at Blueprint Church. But to your point, maybe you could hit on this, Dottie, like there is the global church and there is that your love for one another will be known, right? And, and so there is that element. But in our context for this local church, we are talking about that side of family. Yeah, and so there, yeah, and I love what you're saying. It's basically, there's always a general application that we have. And so when we says loving God, our relationship with God, relationship with other believers and relationship with our neighbor, you know, the legalist that we, that we are ours is like, well, God, just like they did in Luke chapter 15, is, well, God, who's my neighbor? Right. And so we want to know who is our neighbor. OK, who do I have to apply this to? 
right? And then ultimately, without going through that passage of the Good Samaritan, basically the, the short answer that he is given is he says, your neighbor is anybody who crosses your path. Anybody who crosses your path is a neighbor. So we have a responsibility in general to be neighbors, to love anybody who crosses our path as a believer in Christ. But we have a specific responsibility locally within your church, right? Because love isn't love unless it can be applied, right? And so it's really important that you are able to define what that is. And just like in the same way we define, so like even in our family, I have a nuclear family, but I also have first cousins and second cousins and you know, and everything else. And there's this like simply, so when I'm out with my first cousins or even my second, I don't think third cousins are really cousins, but this, but you know, if I keep moving on out there, right? It's just like at some point, right? I don't treat them like jerks. I still have a responsibility, but at the same time, I am, I am responsible in because of proximity, Right. And so that's the reason why I think it's really in defined. That was one answer. And the other thing is, is that I, I shared this yesterday, last week in the Q&A, was the Bible primarily talks about church in the local context. So when we said that there's 114 times that the Bible uses the word ecclesia in the New Testament, which is the church. Ecclesia, 114 times. Uh, and five of those times, because that just means a gathering. So like Ephesians says, they gathered together to, to, to riot. That is ecclesia. So that's not, they're not saying church. 109 times they're referring to the church. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.